As I mentioned on my uh, episode about the Broadway melody, uh, social historians consider the golden age of Hollywood to be something that started at roughly the end of the silent era and then continued onwards until uh, television became its main competitor. Uh, this is uh, the 1930s is basically when movies uh, supplanted live theater as the uh, nexus point of American pop culture, largely because you know the movies were a lot cheaper than a the, than a live show, even a vaudeville show, and you know poor people would would be more willing to part with a dime than with uh, you know a much higher form of money. Now the uh, dominant form uh, or genre of film during this period was without question the the, the movie musical uh, dominated the golden age of Hollywood throughout the whole period up until uh, the flop of Dr. Doolittle in 1967 and 1969's Hello Dolly just twisting the rusty dagger in. But until then they were Basically, your go-to blockbusters for almost every year. Now, I already covered the Broadway Melody, which is, you know, the launching point of the MGM yeah, musical. They were the biggest studio and therefore had the most lavish uh, musicals during this period. But I haven't covered a film that was made during a period where the big show-stopping roadshow movie musical was more or less, like, at its peak of both influence and when its formula had calcified. And since the holiday is coming up as of this recording, I thought we'd cover the Easter Parade. My name is Ryan, Surreal Deep Dive. All right, joining me on this episode is my brother Sylvan, who uh, knows the, uh, the the golden age of Hollywood movie musical is one of your things. Kind of, sort of. Um, I'm obsessed with Judy Garland, so I've picked up a lot of information about her musicals specifically, and, you know, you learn about Judy Garland, you're going to get curious about Gene Kelly, you learn about Gene Kelly, you're going to look into, like, Sid Charisse, and, like, things just kind of spiral from there. So um, I wouldn't say my knowledge of the musicals of that era are at all encyclopedic. I'm very far from that, but I definitely can probably ramble on about about uh, MGM musicals, especially more than your typical 33-year-old. Yeah, when I was uh, workshopping this this podcast and, you know, t- uh, considering various people to appear on it, I assumed that you were just going to be my go-to whenever we did a Judy Garland film, but you were a bit reluctant at first because um, you were active in, like, Judy Garland fan circles, which, I, I mean, I don't want to bask in stereotypes, but it's filled with middle-aged and elderly gay men. Uh <laughs> And they like Judy Garland more than either of us are capable of liking anything, and you're kind of afraid that they would just jump down your throat if you made a minor mistake or something. It is a bit intimidating, and Judy Garland is one of those figures that it's very easy to make mistakes about, no matter how well-researched you want to be, because I I find this fascinating. Um, My background um, is in history. I went to college for that, Um, and, you know, when you're working as a historian, there's kind of a hierarchy of the types of sources you look at. And usually first person sources like from the thing you're studying are the most reliable. But with the case of Judy Garland, she's the least reliable source of information about herself. Um, She, you know, stepped into the public eye at arguably two years old. So that was when she had her first performance and she was groomed for celebrity from an early age. So she repeated just so many um, like publicist narratives about her own life and her biography that they got kind of confused in her head. Um, And also she was such an entertainer 
She loved to tell stories, whether they were true or not. So um, there's just a lot of bad information out there about her. And oftentimes the source of the misinformation is Judy Garland herself. And then also people very close to her had um, very like obvious motives in telling stories about her too. That wouldn't necessarily always be true. Her uh, ex-husbands can be a source of a lot of misinformation. So I've read like six or seven Judy Garland biographies at this point and you know, they're all painstakingly researched and sourced very well. And all, quite a few of them say completely different things from each other. So um, it makes it sort of fun. That's how you can read so many biographies about the same person, because you're really never going to get the same story twice. I mean, yeah, that's what I was thinking is because uh, basically from an outsider looking in, I'm, I'm even more casual about uh, American musical theater than you are. You've, you've read multiple Judy Garland biographies. You're active and, you know, fan service circles. You seem to have uh, tracked down every Garland film that you could find and watched it multiple times. By my perspective, you seem pretty authoritative. And I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and it just makes me think of something that Carrie King, the guitarist for the thrash metal band Slayer, once said, where you know he commented on certain fans who would carve the Slayer logo into their back. And he's like, I wouldn't do that for my wife, let alone a band I like. <laughs> so yeah there are judy garland people who will do the slayer carving the name on the back things i mean most likely yeah mostly they seem to stick to making drawings though. okay well either way uh you have decided to jump into the deep end of the pool and record something about a piece of judy garland lore despite the fact that some of these people might come across it on the internet and have words for you <laughs> It, it is a little intimidating, but I promise to do my best. Okay, before we dive into the plot, there's one other thing I wanted to bring up, and uh, that is uh, a more personal note. Uh, this is apparently, if not the favorite, one of the favorite movies of our maternal grandfather, whom we called Papa D. Yep, um, and there's uh, just kind of a fun thing in our family, too. Um, a lot of our aunts and cousins believe that uh, Judy Garland bears a strong physical resemblance to our grandmother, uh, Grammy. And I have to admit, when I was a kid, I didn't really see it. Um, I just, Judy Garland was roughly the same age as our grandmother. So I kind of assumed everybody was just going on off the fact that like, they would have had a similar sense of fashion and style because of, you know, being of the same generation. But I can kind of see it in Easter Parade of um, all of the Judy Garland films. That I think is the one where she looks the most like Grammy. So the fact that it was one of Papa D's favorite movies is rather cute, I think. Yeah, that is cute. And uh, you, you pointed out there was uh, there was at least one photo of Grammy when she was, you know, roughly the age that Judy Garland was in when she, when she was in her most iconic roles. And it kind of looks like a headshot. And yeah, you, you said that yeah, there's a little bit of Garland in there. Yeah, I can, I can see it a little bit. All right, so before we go into that, all right, the, the plot of this film, uh, it takes place um, in America, uh, early 20th century, 1912 or 1913. Yeah, those are the years that are floating around in the background images. Uh, yeah, it focuses uh, at first on uh, Don Hughes, who's played by Fred Astaire, and um, uh, Nadine Hale, who is uh, played by Ann Miller. They are a popular dancing act, and uh, the very first scene is Don buying a bunch of various Easter presents for Nadine, who you know, not only is she his partner, but he, he's fallen for her. And uh, yeah, there's just this elaborate sequence where he just screws this little boy out of a plush, uh, plush bunny on uh, on the day before Easter, so he can give it to her. 
by convincing him that what he really wants is a drum. He does not want a drum. He wants an Easter bunny. It's almost Easter. Yeah, the toy store only has one bunny left. Although it seemed fairly well stocked everywhere else. <laughs> However, uh, Don's efforts are stymied because Nadine has decided to uh, cut out of the act and go solo. Now, he does sing her It Only Happens When I Dance With You, the uh, the, the, the song that is re reprised even more than the title one. Yeah, it's like the principal romantic motif of the movie. Yeah, and she's 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 under a spell for a moment or so, but she's able to resist him the very instant that Don's best friend Johnny comes in. John being played by Peter Lawford, and yeah, that, that's that's basically when they break things off uh, permanently. Nadine is very very unsubtly advancing on Johnny, who is uncomfortable to this, possibly because he's you know he respects his friend Don too much. Although his uh, his interest in the character we haven't gotten around to yet kind of conflates against that. Now, John, Don has a few drinks at a nearby bar afterwards and uh, belligerently insists that he can make a star out of the next dancer he meets. Uh, he pulls Hannah Brown, who's played by Judy Garland, out of the chorus line and tells her to meet him for rehearsal the next day. She thinks that he's a drunk idiot, but she changes her mind the instant that she realizes that he's a famous performer. Uh, our next uh, scene, Don regrets his impulsive decision, uh, especially when Hannah actually arrives and struggles to perform at rehearsal. Uh, she can't tell her right leg from her left without a garter and, and ends up having to make do with a rubber band. Afterwards, uh, where they actually get something down, uh, they spot Nadine just sort of peacocking about with her dogs at the Easter parade. And a very, very jealous Don just resolves to mold Hannah into a pro and show her up at the Easter parade next year. And Hannah, of course, misconstrues that as romantic attention from Don on her because he is so passionate about how brilliant and lovely she's going to be. Um, there's a lot of amusing moments in this movie of the characters basically misreading each other's intentions, and I think that's one of the better moments of that. Yeah, during the awkward rehearsal sequence, there's this bit where uh, Don just pulls Hannah into his arms, and he's like, look at me smoldering. Look at me in a way that makes every other man in the audience jealous of that I am not them. And she's just like, whoa, she just poo brains. Yeah, it's very well done. This sets up a bit where uh, Johnny tries to, um, I mean, where uh, Don basically attempts to My Fair Lady, uh, before My Fair Lady was a thing, uh, Hannah into um, Nadine. He picks her out a, an exotic name, as he puts it, uh, Juanita, and he buys her a bunch of various dresses and jewelry that are suited to Nadine, but not her. This is told very obviously. There's no... Um, there's no, there's no subtle shading in this film. Judy Garland's like, oh, I like this. And then, and then, and then uh, Fred Astaire's like, oh, take this one without even looking at her. Now, uh, their first show together ends rather poorly. And uh, the staging on this is pretty cool because uh, uh, Hannah is wearing this very frilly dress. And through the lighting, you can very clearly see, like, little bits of fabric just fall off the dress as she's... You they're, know, screwing up her steps and such. They're like super thin feathers. It's almost like a boa material. Now, uh, the next major scene is when Johnny tries to reunite Don with Nadine at lunch. Johnny's just basically being Don's wingman throughout this whole movie. He's, he, he, he's trying to be a good bro. He, he's not always great at it, but he's A for effort. This leads to Nadine taunting Don for hiring a knockoff to replace her. And uh, while that's happening, uh, Johnny bumps into Hannah uh, in the midst of the rain, and he's just instantly 
instantly smitten by her. Which, as a Judy Garland fan, I really appreciated. We'll get into this more, but a principal plotline of a lot of her early movies is that she is so plain and kind of, like, repulsive. How could guys ever find her attractive or fall in love with her? We need to have elaborate plot measures to explain how she could conceivably be a romantic interest. Meanwhile, I think she's rather pretty, so it was kind of nice to see Peter Lawford's character fall in love with her. Yeah, she's not usually sexy enough for Mickey Rooney, but, you know, this conventionally handsome man with a sexy accent is like, ooh, I want that one. <laughs> right after this, Don instructs Hannah to perform naturally, acting like this is his idea the whole time. Another very cute moment between the two of them. And uh, he realizes her talent when, you know, she sings I Love a Piano, because, um, you know, uh, Judy Garland's a... A good, solid dancer, but um, she's she, she's she's a singer. That, that that's where her strengths lie. That's why she became famous. Uh, this uh, results in a uh, montage song medley afterwards that you know demonstrates Don and Hannah's uh, growing on stage chemistry. And it's also a nice nostalgic nod to like vaudeville, and um, you know this this movie would have been um, you know a time period throwback and have the nostalgia factor when it was released. To us, it all seems old, but this was supposed to seem, like, cheery old then. Yeah, this uh, this film takes place in 1948, which, um, if you are familiar with even the... I mean, yeah, this, this film was shot in 1948, rather. And if you are familiar with even the basic aspects of 20th century history, you notice that there was a couple of rough decades, and uh, a lot of people were probably pining for a, uh, a time when things seemed simpler at least to uh, middle-class white folk. Now, Dawn and Hannah audition for the uh, Ziegfeld Follies, which, once again, if you're not if, if you're not too uh, knowledgeable about this period in American pop culture uh, history, was a big deal. And, uh, and also, there were a couple of MGM movies specifically about Ziegfeld, so, you know, keep that interest going within the company. Yep. They do very well, and uh, they're accepted, but things are complicated when it's revealed that Nadine is the star of the show, this is when Hannah and Nadine are introduced to each other, and, you know, she realizes that that girl peacocking around with the dogs was Don's former dancing partner, and he's probably still hung up on her, and he might have brought her on to get back at her, which, what, which you know, he did. Uh, Hannah asks Don if they used to be an item. And uh, she storms off when Dawn uh, just basically flubs through an attempt to give her proper response. Uh, this is the first moment when it is implied that Hannah's interest in working with Dawn is anything other than purely professional. Dawn then turns down a slot in the show, largely because of ego, but also just, you know... He's still hung up on Nadine. Now, uh, Johnny uh, bumps into Hannah again, and he takes her out to dinner to uh, confess his feelings for her. He's met her twice, and he's in love with her because it's an MGM musical. However, uh, she reveals that she's in love with Dawn. Just all those hours of them constantly dancing together and performing together. She's, she's gotten close to him. She's, she's developed things for him. That's not entirely implausible, but we'll be getting into that later. And she goes into an awful lot of detail over it with this man she's just met who has just confessed his feelings for her. This is a very awkward scene. Yeah, that being said, I do think this is the, the, the monologue that she gives about how she um, screws up dancing steps on purpose just to spend more time with Dawn is probably the most vulnerable moment that Garland gives, at least in terms of, like, acting in this. Oh, yeah, no, it's well done and touching and does a lot for character, but you're just like, 
Oof, I feel bad for both of these people. Uh, yes, I, I, I think this is the only scene in the film where the acting isn't, like, ov overtly stagey. And it isn't just patter that's going in between the musical numbers. Something else we'll be talking about later. Now, the next major scene is Don excitedly telling Hannah that he's booked a show with the two of them and uh, with uh, with them at top billing. Uh, this is while Hannah is on the phone with uh, Johnny and puts it down, and Johnny overhears everything. He invites her to dinner to, uh, to celebrate, and uh, this kind of crushes Johnny a little bit. Uh, this is the moment where Johnny starts settling for Nadine, this other beautiful woman who's just been throwing herself at him since the beginning of the film. If you're not already familiar with Ann Miller, like, do a quick Google image and search right now. Like, this is, this is not settling. <laughs> She is beautiful. Yeah, Hannah picks out a new dress for it because she thinks it's a date, and she is sorely disappointed that Don just wants to talk shop. She just she just goes off on that, uh, reprimanding him for uh, a robotic devotion to craft, claiming that he has no emotion, that he's just a human pair of dancing shoes, and shuts her eyes and demands her to tell him what color her eyes are because she doesn't think he's noticed. And at that moment, he kisses her and tells her that, that they're brown. Yeah, uh, they eventually uh, embrace after a uh, reprise of It Only Happens When I Dance With You. And Don uh, gives out the line, uh, which uh, is not the first time that that line's been uttered in a Judy Garland film. Put attack in that one, too. <laughs> now, the next sequence is Don and Hannah's show. Uh, that includes Stepping Out With My Baby, uh, which is one of the most well-known songs in the film, and includes an incredibly elaborate dance number with lots of interesting color coordination, <laughs> and also a, a, an incredibly awkwardly shot sequence where Fred Astaire is just moving about with a cane in slow motion while clearly green screen people behind him are dancing normally. I tried to find uh, the impetus for this creative decision, and I couldn't. Yeah, I, I haven't bumped into it myself. Also, the uh, awkward spray tans everybody is sporting in that uh, sequence uh, definitely drew my eye, especially with the badly coordinated uh, color schemes of the women's dresses. I'm just assuming all of those white people essentially painted orange are probably not meant to be red as white. Yeah, there's they're supposed to be like Caribbean or something. I'm surprised that there wasn't a woman like wearing a fruit salad on top of her head. Yep. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I can sort of understand some of the some of the reasons behind the color coordination in there. They're trying to show off the Technicolor by having all this vibrancy thrown at you at the same time. I mean, the one thing that works is that Fred Astaire during that sequence is wearing like this um, white ice cream suit with uh, red accents. With red accents, and yeah, he does pop out from the rest of everybody else, and your eye just keeps going back to him, and that's clearly by design and that part is well done and uh the next uh, bit is we're a couple of swells another uh one of the more iconic uh, um, songs in the in, in the show and uh that one is astaire and judy garland just performing as a bunch of like as, as a pair of filthy hobos yeah and um the character uh in we're a couple of swells was uh became very like personally iconic for judy garland um she kept that as part of her live shows um after uh her mgm years were done and um yeah no she she just she kept that one in the repertoire and uh, used it very effectively now uh, nadine has her maid spying on the show it's the only black character in the movie uh she gives it a bad review in order to massage nadine's ego however the show itself is a big hit 
because you know the movie needs it to be. We won't have our three act structure if they if they fall flat on their face at this point. Now uh, Hannah wants to celebrate the show by going out to uh, the bar where they first met. However, Don hears that Nadine is performing the Ziegfeld Follies at the at at the roof garden, and he wants to go there. Brilliant decision. He he needs to show her. He needs to show her. Anyways, Nadine finds out that uh, Don and Hannah's show did very well because as soon as they get in, everybody everybody just claps at them until they t- agree to take a, uh, a bow. So after um, Nadine's musical number, she invites Don to perform It Only Happens When I Dance With You in a you know a brief uh, dance sequence. Don reluctantly agrees to it, uh, but this uh, impels a humiliated Hannah to storm off. At this point, she's convinced that Don only recruited her as a ploy to make Nadine jealous, which, you know, she's not completely wrong. And while a lot of the direction in this, I think, is pretty anonymous, I was very impressed by the cinematography of, you know, Don and Nadine dancing and then the camera just gradually pans right and at the exact right moment reveals that Hannah's gone. She storms off off camera. Nice bit there. It's one of the one of those things where you see somebody just like land a three-point shot with a swish and you're like, good job. Yeah, um, this was actually only Chuck Walters' second feature film, so um I, I personally am fond of him, but I haven't seen too much of his work yet. Right, after singing another lovelorn ballad at the bar, uh, Hannah returns to her hotel room to find Don waiting for her. Don insists that he has gotten over Nadine and that he loves her completely unreservedly without caveat, but she is unconvinced. Uh, Don then exclaims that he will wait outside her door all night, just before the hotel detective chases him off. Hannah then opens her door to an empty hallway. Right, the next morning, uh, John Johnny comes in and just sort of plays Don's wingman again by just negging Hannah until she uh, is convinced to fight for the man she loves. At this point, Johnny is comfortably tied to Nadine. Uh, Several gifts arrive at Don's apartment with no cards. Uh, This includes a bunny and a sharp suit. Hannah then barges in and urges him to get ready for the Easter parade, which he had promised to take her to. And she basically treats him the way that he'd been treating her during the early part of their relationship. It's a cute scene. It's a very nice switch up, yeah. And as they're performing the title song, uh, he proposes to her, uh, as in, you know, he he pulls a ring out because he had it prepared, and, uh, you know, she fumbles with it. He's like, it goes on the other hand, which is, you know, a nice little touch. And uh, then that's the movie. Yep, it wraps so very happily and peacefully and quickly. Yeah, I felt it was a bit abrupt. Okay, uh, before we go any further, let's talk about the cast. Uh, starting with um, starting with Fred Astaire. I mean, we we rambled about Judy Garland for a bit, but this is also a Fred Astaire movie. Yep, and famously, it wasn't conceived that way um, when the movie was. Um, being written and developed, uh, Gene Kelly was supposed to be playing Don, um, but he had to um, bow out of the movie like two or three days before they were supposed to start shooting because he uh, broke his ankle um, playing volleyball in his backyard. And um, I, like I mentioned, have read all these different Judy Garland books, and I noticed that uh, each one mentioned a different uh, origin of his broken ankle. Um, One of the books I read said that it was softball. Another one said football. Um, One said nothing to do with sports entirely. So I finally got that cleared up. Um, Patricia Ward Kelly, uh, Gene Kelly's wife and biographer, uh, has a delightful Facebook page on him. And 
uh, apparently the reason why there are so many different versions of that story is because when he broke his ankle playing volleyball, he was actually really embarrassed about that. So he tried to make it out initially that it was a professional injury that he'd gotten. And then uh, people kept reporting that misinformation. And then the story just kept changing. So she's very clear with people. It was a volleyball accident. One of his friends landed on his ankle badly and he broke it. Yeah, at the time, Fred Astaire was retired, scare quotes. Fred Astaire, would, uh, Fred Astaire would fake retire several times during his career and then come out and make some classic musicals again. Uh, this was the first time. Gene Kelly basically twisted his arm uh, to get in there. And yeah, even though you know, Astaire does in a number of scenes try to make the part his own, this, this was clearly written with Kelly in mind. Yeah, I think of this one very much as a spiritual successor to an earlier film called For Me and My Gal. Um, that was actually Gene Kelly's first movie, uh, period. Um, he was 28 years old at the time, had um, just come to Hollywood, um, just signed with uh, MGM, and uh, he starred in that with Judy Garland and credited her with basically showing him the ropes of how to perform for film as opposed to before that he'd been on Broadway. And there are just striking similarities between uh, Easter Parade and For Me and My Gal, including that line, like, why didn't you tell me I was in love with you? That's in both movies. Um, and that has a lot to do with, I think, the fact that it was just a winning formula. For Me and My Gal worked. MGM could be very innovative in certain ways in, regarded, in regards to their musicals, but Principally, if something worked, they were going to do it again and again and again until it stopped working. So you have a lot of um, continuity between the different movies. And Easter Parade, I think, was envisioned as an attempt to just keep that going. Oh, Gene Kelly and Judy Garland make audiences happy and then they spend money. Let's put them in another love story together. Yeah, another thing is that... Uh... Uh, Fred Astaire was not a, a young man anymore. Uh, not that he ever appeared young, mind you, but no, he was not no longer uh, young, and he definitely looked possibly older than his age. I mean, he always looked older than his age, but what I wanted to get into is that at this point, he had several decades worth of sprains and worn-out ligaments and bad knees. And uh, yeah, those, those those bits where he does the technically demanding superhuman feats of uh, tap-dancing Daring Do, not so much in this film. He, he takes it a little easier. It's, uh, yeah, there, there, there is one, like, in terms of dancing terms, technically demanding sequence, but uh, that isn't done by a stare. We'll be getting to that later, uh, in, in, in a moment. You, 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 you can tell he's not in his Ginger Rogers period here when he's, when he's moving around. He, he works well within the confines of what he's capable of, but he isn't almost about to kill himself on roller skates. The main comparison I was thinking of uh, isn't another dancer, but actually Jackie Chan. Uh, most American audiences are more familiar with Jackie Chan from his, uh, you know, American crossover films, such as uh, Rush Hour and the like. And Chan's uh, action choreography in those is, is different, um, not only because uh, in, you know, Hollywood movies, they were less willing to do retake after retake after retake after retake until they got it perfect, but just the fact that uh, Jackie Chan had spent the previous 20 years of his life almost killing himself to entertain you, 
and maybe the scar tissue was bothering him too much. Let's 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 just trade jokes with Owen Wilson and, and then do a little high uh, and then and then the break for the day. I'm almost forty. I can't do this to myself anymore. I was curious about um, Fred Astaire's actual age in Easter Parade, so I looked it up, and uh, he was forty nine. I assumed he was actually a little older than that when he made this one. Yeah, there is an age difference between him and Garland, but it's not nearly as bad as certain other films from the same period. There are Alfred Hitchcock movies that are worse than this. Yeah. All right, uh, we talked a little bit about Peter Lawford already. I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add about him. You know, uh, basically the wingman throughout the film, negs a little bit, uh, conventionally handsome with a sexy accent. People don't seem to notice that when contrasted against the stare. Yeah, um, so there's been some discussion of this in um, the Judy Garland fan circles uh, since I've been um, participating in them. Some people are interested in seeing that alternate timeline where Gene Kelly got to actually follow through and film Easter Parade. But many people are very attached to it as is and are perfectly fine with Fred Astaire in the lead role. I really want to see the alternate universe where Gene Kelly got to make the movie. I mean, I have such a crush on him. He's a charming, charismatic man. And I think the movie would make a lot more sense if, you know, Judy Carland has no interest in young, dashing Peter Lawford because Gene Kelly is the one that she's drawn to versus, you know... Papa Fred Astaire. And once again, getting back to it, it, it is in text in the universe. They spent night after night together, hours upon hours, and I don't think it's completely outside the realm of plausibility that you could, you could get romantic feelings for somebody in that environment. Oh, absolutely. But at, for most of the movie, he's not nice to her. That works a lot better if you're handsome. Yeah, uh, that also plays into a lot of what is said about uh, Astaire as a professional. He, uh, You don't get to his level of ability without a strong internal sense of discipline. And he expected uh, his uh, partners to be just as dedicated as he was. Uh, one thing that leapt out to me uh, when he was asked about how Ginger Rogers differed from the various other uh, people who uh, led films with him, he said, it's like, no matter how hard I drilled her, she never cried. Um, and you know, that brings to mind the anecdote about the filming of Singing in the Rain, where um, so Debbie Reynolds was very young when they filmed that movie and not a dancer. She was a gymnast and she had a breakdown trying to um, film the scene uh, Good Morning and wound up crying underneath the piano. And Fred Astaire was actually the one to find her and talk to her and build her confidence back up. Um, it's very touching if you ever like watch an interview with her talking about that moment. But, uh, you know, contrasts with that, like he was still a nice guy, at least saw a teenager crying. But yeah, he was very strict about the dancing. And he also brought that home to her, too, while he was trying to make her feel more confident. Uh, you mean Kelly, not Astaire, right? No, Astaire was the one who found her crying under the piano. And singing in the rain? I'm talking about when they were filming it, not a plot point in the movie. Ah, okay. Yeah, he brought her into a rehearsal and stuff and gave her a speech about the difficulties of dancing and how she was going to have to work so hard to do it, but she could. Yeah, uh, Astaire has a reputation as being a bit of a hard ass. Uh, what, what's astonishing is that apparently Ginger Rogers had no professional dance experience before she started doing musicals with, with Astaire, because you can't tell. 
She did everything he did backwards and in heels, as is often said. All right, getting back to Easter Parade, though. <laughs> All right, Nadine is played by Ann Miller. Uh, it was supposed to be uh, Sid Charisse, but uh, uh, she tore ligaments in her knee. This is uh, Miller's MGM deb uh, debut, and uh, afterwards she would do On the Town and uh, Kiss Me Kate. She's lovely in Kiss, uh, Kiss Me Kate. I've seen On the Town, and she's fine in it, but that movie was not for me. Yeah, uh, the centerpiece in this, I believe, is uh, Shaking the Blues Away, which... Uh, um, that's the that's the technically demanding uh, dance sequence. Uh, Miller is doing this elaborate, very well choreographed tap routine while she's wearing this interesting yellow skirt. That, Trip uh, hazard. Uh, yeah, yeah. She gets caught on it like four or five times in the take that made it in the film. I don't want to know how many takes there were where she, you know, fell on her face. I'm guessing there are at least at least a few. And by the way, like get caught on it. Like she she does very well around that. You can just see where it it almost gets under her her shoes in a bad way. Yeah, there is uh, one thing you wanted to bring up about shaking the blues away though. While while we're on the subject. Yeah. Um. So. I heard an earlier version of this song, and um, they tweaked the lyrics a little for Easter Parade. Um, they say, like, way down south, everyone, and uh, in the older versions, it's the darkies. And it's uh, an interesting attempt to try to make the song less racially problematic, because it doesn't entirely work, right? Like, you know that they're making this kind of, like, I don't know, Mammy-esque, like, very um, pleasant and charming, picturesque, but not at all realistic depiction of Black people with their innocent superstitions and stuff that by the time Easter Parade is filmed, they know it's not appropriate, but they also don't really know how to fix it, and they're not entirely interested in fixing it. I'll settle for removing that one word, darkies, does not entirely make the song palatable by today's standards. But it was good enough for the 40s, I guess. Yeah, they, they, they tried. And uh, this is not the only instance of this happening in an Irving Berlin musical. Uh, Berlin, especially in the earliest parts of his career, drew a great deal from uh, you know African-American musical traditions. Uh, his first big hit was Alexander's Ragtime Band, which is very clearly just based on the name derived from such things. And, you know, that brings up the questions we have about cultural appropriation and uh, what's the line between um, respectful borrowing and just using someone else's ethnicity as a costume, and there's no easy answer for that. And, uh, yeah, the last actor I want to bring up in this is a minor character actor, uh, uh, Jules uh, Mushin. He's the maitre d' for the two restaurant sequences in this film. I, one thing I, I, I pointed out while I was watching this film for the second time with Sylvan was that the character actors in this are, are, are pretty good overall. The bartender, uh, the, you know, the, the, the grumpy taxi cab driver, not much is asked of them. They usually only give one or two lines, but they usually land it. But one of the one of the weirdest scenes in the film is when is is when the maitre d is asked to describe the salad and he goes into this big elaborate like routine about what the salad is made out of and all the traditions that that go into the making of it and at the end of it they decide oh we don't want it haha ha, that's the joke yeah when I've watched this part I'm always left with the sense of I know I'm meant to find this entertaining but I don't understand how. Yeah, it's a real big-lipped alligator moment because a lot of things in uh, MGM mu movie musicals lift right out, but this isn't even a song. Yeah, it but is yeah, that, that part's on the soundtrack. 
Yeah, yeah. The, the whole thing is basically like a Mr. Bean routine that happened like 30 years early. It kind of reminds me of that scene in Love Actually where Rowan Atkinson is trying is like elaborately wrapping the present. Except in that scene, it's very charming and funny. Although I don't like that movie as a whole. All right, uh, going to the reception of this film, uh, it's it's hard to talk about box office da uh, data from uh, this period because it is it is not hard. There are a lot of contradictory accounts of it. But uh, it was the highest grossing musical of 1948, we know this much, and it was either the second highest overall or at least in the, in the, in the top 10. This is the biggest hit of Astaire's career, and uh, it is also Judy Garland's most successful film. Unless you uh, decide to run up the score with re-releases of The Wizard of Oz, then it's very easily that. Now, it, uh, the highest grossing film of that year was a version of The Three Musketeers, which stars Gene Kelly and Lana Turner, which I hadn't even heard of before uh, uh, researching for this episode. But that sounds that sounds like either it would be very charming in, in a dated way or a total train wreck. Yeah, I haven't seen that one myself, so I can't comment yet. But that's, that's on the list of films I want to track down. Yeah, it did win one Oscar. Uh, it was for uh, Best Original Score which is a new category for the academies at the time it uh it beat the pirate which uh you have feelings about the pirate <laughs> oh okay i i don't i don't like the pirate but i find it fascinating like a train wreck i mean i've covered a lot of those on this show i wouldn't mind doing the pirate down the road if you're keen i would totally watch it again with you it's such a maybe not for a podcast though all right one other thing uh there is a uh there is a musical number that was cut from this film uh, Judy Garland performs uh, Mr. Monotony wearing a fedora tuxedo jacket in nylons. It was removed from the film because the studio thought that it was too sexy for a movie set in 1913, which is odd because, as you've mentioned earlier, Garland is often billed as like, oh, this plain Jane, nobody looks twice at her lady, but they're like, this scene is too sexy. And then also to Ann Miller's skirt that um, the front of it doesn't exist, you basically just see her lingerie. That was fine. She does have fabulous legs. Uh, Garland wears basically the same outfit in uh, iconic scene in Summerstock, and uh, like the hobo outfit, that whole like tuxedo jacket, fedora, and uh, nylon thing just became part of uh, Garland's shtick. Yep, and the the dancing boys with her from Summerstock also became part of the Yeah. Uh, also notably, Liza Minnelli sports a similar look in Cabaret, which is uh, sort of. Interesting because, I mean, I, you probably know more about this than I do, but uh, Minnelli seemed to spend a lot of her career trying to split the difference between honoring her mother's legacy and finding her own voice. Which I think she accomplished rather well, obviously. I think she did as good a job as anybody did, uh, you know. She's a Robbie Coltrane at the very least. And uh, I do think that co uh, Cabaret, at least as an island, is a, a, a very good job at like playing into the Judy Garland side, but also adding stuff, doing stuff that Judy Garland in her time because of the Hayes Code wouldn't be allowed to do. The gayness. <laughs> Cabaret's a very gay movie, believe it or not. No! <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the the cut sequence finally saw the light in a 1994 direct-to-video compilation called That's Entertainment 3. If any of you are familiar with a musical um, 
uh, musical theater and film, you know that the first two That's Entertainments were compilation films of popular MGM uh, song and dance sequences just sort of strung together. They were released in the mid to late 1970s. However, by the time the third one was put together in 1994, you know, most people had a VCR, so the idea of watching a compilation in a movie theater that you had to buy a ticket to see was kind of ridiculous. So even though it was still direct-to-video, uh, they used cutscenes instead of instead of popular ones, and that's where uh, that's where the Mr. Monotony thing finally saw the right light of day. Now, uh, there are some uh, rougher edges of this film, part of it due to the audio. Uh, the original audio recording of, of uh, Easter Parade was destroyed in a fire, so that means that it, it is impossible to remix in a stereophonic or surround sound. We're going to encounter a lot of that because of the universal music fire that was that, that, that recently happened where, you know, everybody from, like, Nina Simone to Nirvana had their master tapes destroyed. That's going to be rough. But uh, a very similar situation happened with White Christmas, so you, you, can, only, you can only listen to um, Easter Parade or White Christmas in mono, uh, at least until technology, you know, catches up to that sort of thing. Now, since this is a musical, and I like to touch upon the soundtrack of a movie, even if it isn't a musical, we should probably talk about the Irving Berlin songs in more detail. You listen to this soundtrack over and over again whenever it's Easter. You drove your co-workers nuts with it once, didn't you? Yeah, last year they were begging me to stop. Now, uh, before I saw, uh, I, I saw this film, the only real thing I knew about Easter Parade, an anecdote in Ken Burns' jazz talking about um, a Sonny Rollins performance where it was the night before Easter and he had a gig at the, uh, I think it was the Village Vanguard, and as he was playing, the, the, the clock stuck, uh, struck midnight, it was officially Easter, and then he just played a couple of bars of Easter Parade in the middle of his solo, and everyone laughed. And, yeah, that, that was everything I knew about Easter Parade before I saw this movie for the first time a couple days ago. I'm, I'm really wondering how you managed to escape the market made on our family, because, um, you know, I didn't get around to this one until my, like, fondness for Judy Garland flipped the switch into an overall style obsession a couple years ago. But uh, this is like a staple in our family. So every Easter, like our, our mother and um, uh, like some family members would bust out with just a couple of lines from the title track. Um, so I never really got the rest of it. But that in your Easter bonnet, like that was constant at Easter time growing up. Although, come to think of it, you have always identified as male, so you were never forced into an Easter bonnet. Uh, Mom and Auntie Donna used to sing that to us as they were, like, forcing us to wear Easter bonnets, which were considered necessary parts of uh, Easter apparel. I mean, I'm still weirded out by the idea of there being um, elaborate Easter parades where people would dress to the nines and the paparazzi would approach them. And I'm like, is that a thing that people did? It must be. Yeah, I would have to look into that in more detail, but I, it does seem like they're referencing real-time events going on there. Um, and yeah, certainly in our family, dressing up for Easter and having bonnets was considered like a very necessary thing. Like, it struck mom as like heretical that I would want to put together an Easter outfit that did not include a bonnet. We were Catholic. Not that I needed to point it out after that bit. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, with all of the, you know, the behind-the-scenes and the technical stuff all out of the way, it is time to do analysis of themes. 
The first and most pronounced I wanted to talk about, which I uh, hinted at in the intro, is basically the formula for the MGM musical, because they wrote this for as long as they could. The first one is the Broadway Melody of 1929, and they basically just did variations of this until everything went crashing down permanently with Hello, Dolly! in 69, which was a Fox movie, but still made in this idiom. Yeah, um, so... Once you've seen a few of the MGM musicals, you just you can't help but be struck by the similarities. They're they're very comfortable, and um, I know that you like to compare them to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I think has merit. But to get at the point that I'm making now, it feels to me kind of like reading Jane Austen novels. Right? They all have different sorts of characters and elements to them, but the structure is so similar. You know there's going to be a heroine. You know there's going to be a hero. You know initially there's going to be circumstances keeping them from getting together, but everybody is going to be happily married off by the end of the story, except for that one guy that you totally shouldn't trust, but everybody's going to trust him for a little while first. And even though it's repeated, there's a kind of soothing quality to the fact that the formula is followed through every time. Like, you know that things are going to resolve in a way that feels tight and sensible um, by the end of the movie. Yeah, uh, that makes me think of something that Carlos Santana once said in a Rolling Stone interview where he was talking about Motown, and he's like, I like 90% of the Motown songs I heard, but after you hear this, like, 200th in a row, it does get a bit samey. And uh, I'm not saying that there aren't variations to them, because th there are uh, the Marx Brothers movies uh, that, that they did for MGM, especially Night at the Opera. They're essentially MGM musicals that give some space for, like, Groucho, Harpo, and Checo to do their stuff. But then there's, you know, those, those la uh, lavish, elaborate choreographed numbers that weren't in the Marx Brothers Paramount movies. They just basically reek of MGM. And, like, you get some flavor from the talents of the individual actors and the directors at the helm. Um, so since I've spent the most time on the Judy Garland films, I've seen, you know, the way a few different directors will handle her, and I do have preferences. Um, Chuck Walters directed Easter Parade, and he also directed Summerstock, and those are two of my favorites. Um, there's a safety uh, level about them. Like, they're not necessarily the most ambitious of MGM musicals with anything, like story, uh, character development, dance numbers, um, but they're just so well done. Like all of the individual elements work so well together and there's a craft to them that I really like. Um, meanwhile, I would say that one of my least favorite directors is Busby Berkeley. He seemed, in my opinion, to uh, settle more on spectacle than on trying to get any other element right. Like, he was known for these huge sweeping shots of, like, elaborate, giant dance scenes where basically let's crowd as many people to them as possible, and that'll make it splashy and effective, and then nobody will have to worry about, like, Nuance. And yeah, that, that that gets into what I want to talk about comparing them to the Marvel movies, which, you know, if the modern day has an inheritor to basically what the MGM films were like in the 30s and 40s, it's basically what the Marvel movies are doing now. You know, there are variations thereof, but like hearing 200 Motown songs in a row, I don't begrudge people who uh, who feel that they're a bit samey. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm a comic book fanboy. I, I think most of the Marvel movies are a solid B+, and that a couple of them are like phenomenal films 
and that even the stinkers are a lot better than, say, Batman and Robin or Superman 4. But, you know, there's... It, it, you know what you're getting into when you when you watch one. They're, they're not super challenging. They're, they're usually entertaining on at least the basic surface level. You're gonna get some. You're gonna get some banter between the characters. Uh, you know, one scene's gonna move into the next. Uh, characterization is going to be built up around the very, very, very tightly structured three act, uh, uh, three act bit. You know, the fight scenes are are nice, although they uh, that that doesn't doesn't seem to be the main reason that anyone goes see, goes and sees them. I think uh, that that's kind of an inversion of what the MGM musicals are because. The talky bits are not why anybody goes to see Easter Parade. Some of them are nice, some of them are just okay, but they're there for the big, elaborate, choreographed dance numbers. Whereas uh, nobody's favorite part of Avengers is when all the Avengers are going against the giant sky, sky portal. Yeah, that's that's definitely a fair assessment. I think that's a good comparison. Uh, yeah, getting back to uh, formula, uh, one of the things that was established in the Broadway melody that is still in here is just the, the sense of male entitlement, which you definitely wanted to talk about. And I touched upon it in the Broadway melody uh, uh, review, but... Um, I'm under the impression that you could uh, phrase it more eloquently than I did. Maybe. Um, yeah, I've, I've definitely spent some time thinking about this. Um, overall, I, I try not to go in too much for the, um, like, diagnosing. Obvi obviously, Judy Garland, as a performer, um, her legacy has been a bit tarnished by personal troubles and... Uh, people sensationalize that and talk it up and really focus on it. And, you know, there's, I mentioned earlier, there's only so much information you can know for sure about her. And it's not entirely sensitive to delve into that, nor is it really fully possible, honestly. But you can't escape the fact that, you know, she started making these movies at a very young age. And the plot of so many of her early movies was that, you're ugly and no one's going to settle for dating you. And I just, that obviously that's going to get into your head after a while and making formulaic movie after movie after movie where she's the ugly girl that a guy has to really get to know to fall in love with her. Um, and she has to sing these elaborate songs about how she's a plain Jane, you know, by, by Easter parade, she had made a few movies where she was, able to be an attractive romantic lead um vincent minnelli famously like actually explored her as a lovely glamorous romantic lead in uh, meet me in st louis and they fell in love and she got married to him um so there was definitely like a hunger to be seen that way and i just i find that to be a a it would be completely comical to me that these beautiful Hollywood actresses have a hard time attracting not always handsome romantic male leads if it wasn't for the fact that this kind of normalizes the sense that, like, even the ugliest guy deserves a Lana Turner. Uh, yeah, that, you know, that's a big part of it. Uh, and, you know, Fred Astaire is basically just fighting off Judy Garland until he finally admits to himself that he cares for her, which is an interesting position for him to be in, because during all those uh, depression musicals, I mean, he does end up with Ginger Rogers at the end, but he has to work for it. Yeah, and that that is a dynamic that makes sense to me, because... I mean, my sense of Fred Astaire is that, you know, even when he was um, in these these older musicals, when he was more age appropriate for his love interest than with these MGM ones, you know, 
he's not the most attractive guy in the world. You're certainly not going to turn your head and give him a second look, but he's got this confidence and swagger and charm where once you get to know him, you could definitely fall in love with him. Uh, Easter Parade doesn't play him like that, and it doesn't entirely work in my head. Yeah, that's something that I said in the Broadway melody, the, the idea that if you are the male antagonist, you are entitled to be paired off with a lovely lady at the end of the film by virtue of being the male uh, protagonist which is not unique to uh, the Broadway melody or musicals in general. And this is hardly the first time it's happened in cinema or outside media, but it is emblematic of a continuing trend. Um, I recently watched um, Bandwagon for the first time, and uh, that's another one of these like MGM later in his career, Fred Astaire musicals. And in that one, he's romantically paired up with Sid Charisse, um, who is, again, like half his age, glamorously beautiful. And most of the movie, um, the way it's played is that they're they're not getting along, and like they they are very self aware of this. Like she makes some comments about him being stuck in the past, and he is seems to be fully aware that he's um, not in his prime anymore. Like that's played for laughs. And, you know, if the end of Easter Parade feels rushed to you, the end of the bandwagon where they just fall in love and hook up, it's like a switch is flipped. Like, okay, the movie's almost over. We've hit time. We need to wrap this up. So now you're a couple. The end. Yeah, yeah. Nazi's not unique to bandwagon either. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, not to, not, not, not to drag it. Whenever I get to the thematic corners of any of these films, we just start, like, talking about the stuff that doesn't quite work. While uh, Anita Sarkeesian is uh, often flamed, especially, you know, in the areas of YouTube where nobody is ever nice, I do think her point about how it is okay to uh, criticize and examine media that you like and it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't like it, I think that's a, I think that's a fair point because if you are not willing to think about the stuff that you, uh, the, the, the stuff that you consume and the stuff that you enjoy, uh, it's, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me, not really. Oh, if I'm not thinking about themes and critiques while I'm watching a movie, it means I'm not intellectually engaging with it and that means I find it boring. So the more... I can dig apart a movie um, and uh, get into its um, issues and what it does well and what it does not so well. That means I'm enjoying myself and I like it rather a lot. So I, I actually can probably trash uh, movies I love way more than movies I hate. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people see this uh, deconstructionist uh, aspect to be like raining on their parade or ruining the things that they like, and I, it, that just seems like an entirely foreign concept to me. Um, so like the notion that something you love has to be above reproach? Um, yeah, yeah, and the, the idea that it is possible for there to exist a form of media which is not problematic by any reasonable standard that one can foist against it, I mean, that thing doesn't exist. Oh, absolutely not. And I don't think anybody who may, who has discussions or projects who project critiques like this is going to is going to think that. And honestly, if such a perfect piece of media existed, it certainly wouldn't be one from the 40s. Yeah, definitely not. And it'd also probably be boring. Mm. <laughs> Okay, well, that's everything I wanted to talk about. Is uh, is there anything else you'd like to throw in? No, I, I think we're pretty much 
pretty good. Um, so yeah, if this does eventually float around to the Judy Garland fan circles, just again, uh, go easy on me. I'm, I'm a rabid fan, but not actually any kind of biographer or historian. Sylvan's more nervous than the people are bringing, bringing to talk about comic book movies. That should say something <laughs> uh, about the Judy Garland fandom. <laughs> They're nice too, but yeah, no, they know a lot. Well, I mean, 99 people could be lovely, but if one's a motherfucker... <laughs> <laughs> uh, good night, everybody.